Uh, hey, Tex, what's going on, man? Howdy, man. Thank you for having me. Obviously, you're at the uh, Power Athlete HQ office there, I can tell. Yes, home of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning, Power Athlete Ding. Radio. Ding. 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 For folks who don't know, if you don't get that one, guys, you got to get on your uh, iPhone, search Power Athlete HQ, and subscribe to that podcast. It's a ton of fun. Thanks. I, uh, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is. It, it's... Um, like people like strength and conditioning, but we also like to just hear people be people and talk about movies and football and stuff. And when I first started listening to some episodes, I'm like, I can get on board with this, you know, it, a little bit of strength and conditioning, a little bit of fun. And it started just essentially genuine conversations with folks and we aimed for an hour and then the conversations just got too good to stop. So there are some episodes that push three hours. Derek Woodski's he's, a mind that just keeps on wandering. So we let them go. And it's a great opportunity that I've found to connect with people within the strength and conditioning realm. So some solid networking tool, which is going to come into play. Now we're losing our annual conferences around the globe, but at the same time, expanding out of the world of strength and conditioning, hitting authors or uh, professors that have a specific component of psychology, for example, and then how can we bring that back into the world in the realm of human performance? It's been fun, man, and we're nearing 400 episodes, maybe by the time this drops, but it's a good time. One at a time, I recommend. Don't go back and start from the beginning. Almost work your <laughs> way backwards and see the quality decline if you go that way, but still fun. Yeah, that look, 400 episodes, the, the amount of discipline that it takes to book guests, record these things, edit them. You guys are you know, truly professionals at this, not just for the strength and conditioning industry, but for podcasting in general. You're, yeah. We've cracked the top 50 in fitness. So it's saying something competing with a lot of the fitness hacks out there. Definitely. And uh, the variety of guests, that's so true and so important. You know, like you can bring strength coach after strength coach and maybe a nutritionist here and there you guys really expanded out and your symposium is the same thing. Your symposium is just not eight performance guys in a row. I mean, you've got, you know, different people, diverse backgrounds and disciplines and that's massively important. And that, that was our former capstone event of every single year. And the symposium was our opportunity to take high quality, awesome people that we connected with on the podcast and bring them in an in-person experience Usually around 200 attendees, we had the opportunity, all attendees, open guest and floor for them to speak with the speakers and hang out and get to know them on a personal level. And that was our, our goal, a nice intimate event that people could be casual and get to know the speakers intimately as we have within the podcast realm. That, yeah. And we have recorded all of the, the presentations and put them up on our YouTube page. So if you want to reflect back, if you were there. But it's, it's just not the same viewing online. We still get the learning experience for years to come with those. Yeah. And, and we'll talk more about the symposium as part of our agenda, if you will. So I'm not, we won't take up the whole time here, but tell us a little bit. Let, let's start with the bee cave, right? The, the, this is what you call it. The, uh, you guys have what, a ranch? Yeah. Yes, sir. So we are equipment. The, the ranch is Power Athlete Headquarters, and this is John's property, about 16 acres. He's got his home on here, and we've constructed a 4,400-square-foot gym slash hobby shop for John that he gets to 
um, bang and clang on some trucks and build some badass stuff. And then we have our office also on the property with a converted horse barn that we've turned into a podcast studio here and some old squat racks that were whipped together in John's shop to become Luke and I's desks. So we got a fun little setup here. The only downside is when it pushes either 100 degrees here in Austin and above or 30 and below, you also find that temperature in the office. So the only downside, but man, we got horses roaming from our neighbors at a horse riding school in the back. And this is in technically still Austin territory, but the bee cave area. And then I live the drive away in, in Dripping Springs, which is called the Drip. And man, it's a beautiful community. Still got land and stars. It's great. It is. It really is beautiful. I mean, like they call it hill country because it's nice rolling hills. I and mean, when the temperature is nice, it's just like freaking awesome there. But it does get hot. And you have some yes. block one, block one. Well, for folks who don't know, block one is your certification for all intents and purposes. Yeah. And this can play into the questions that you've prepared a little bit. But bottom line is we educate coaches for a long time. Power Athlete got to travel the world and teach an in-person clinic. In around 2017, we decided to position this online. So we have this online education experience for anyone, parents, coaches, teachers, or those that are simply interested in strength and conditioning. And then we have a professional track. If they want to, following the online, step this up and come and test their coaching chops in person. We have a two-day testing experience where we go through practical so they stand and teach certain movements to us and demonstrate their, their presence as a coach. Then we have a comprehension and a social intelligence test where they can interact in a live environment, testing how they push and promote squatting a certain way, sprinting, and almost sell to either sport coaches or parents. Those conversations that they will experience in the real world. And the, the key note that we have is we provide feedback. So we, I've been through all the strength and conditioning education opportunities, CSCS, CS, CSCCA, uh, Collegiate Strength and Conditioning Coaches Association, uh, NASM, all of these, and you take their test, you pass or fail, and then that, that's it. We wanted to take this a step further and continue to coach coaches. Most of the coaches that we have within our education network are the head coach of their gym, their small gym, their college, their high school. So they have no one to provide them feedback. Their word goes, we have this opportunity for us to then be a coach of these coaches and empower them. And it's been beautiful because we've had parents come in on their own that have these teenagers and we provide them with confidence to step up and stand with or against football coaches and they've gotten high school gigs from this and taken over teams as mom of these teenage boy that go in and now are the, the football strength and conditioning coach for the high school because they've proven that they have the, the ability to not only stand, communicate the information, but also get these kids going and, and empower their performance. Yeah, and look, I've, I've gone through the online class and you bring up often, you know, the old, the old ball coach, right? This is a high school football coach. It's changing now, but you can say safely without a doubt, the majority of high schools, the head football coach runs the weight room and the head football coach probably played college football and 
um, is probably not the right person in today's context to run the weight room. What the old ball coach says, it goes. And there's so many things, man, when I was in high school, you know, that was, that was my coach. And it was things like steer, look up at the ceiling when you're doing a squat, <laughs> you know, you're going to squat three times a week and we're doing three by 10. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, and that's still happening a lot. So you definitely, it sounds like you had that experience as well, where you saw, you know, football kind of dominate the weight room and probably not for the better. Yes. I, I'm from Katy, Texas, which is West of Houston and football is life and our coaches weight room was a big part of it. And I certainly learned a lot, but they didn't put us in the best position. Remember one kid got he I forget what the injury was, but it was through deadlifting. He injured his back. He could never play football again. And then deadlift was struck from our, our programming. So I didn't deadlift until really after college. I just didn't understand. So one kid getting hurt changed the effectiveness of the whole program, which is not the case. It was poor movement, poor setup, poor coaching, or kid was dead that day. And it led to a change in a ripple effect. At the same time, we, my junior year of high school, we had a wave of steroid use at the older guys. It never caught with, with my crew, but it led to coaches realizing, well, we can't do all the crazy amount of bench press and squatting that we did before because dude's shoulders were blowing up and a kid lost his scholarship to go pitch. So this unhealthy drive for performance and losing against a state powerhouse in Katy High School, uh, Andy Dalton went there for reference, but it was interesting. Then our weight room changed. It was overhead squats. It was very protective. We started introducing pull-ups for the first time. And genuine experience for an athlete growing up, but it never translated to the field. And um, it, it still put me in a position to have success at the, the college ranks with the sport of lacrosse because no one else was lifting weights when I went into to college, Marymount University. So I, I can't just only paint the negative picture, but I, can, I have some lessons learned that I still hold on to when either speaking to parents, coaches, or athlete, high school athletes themselves that I'm working with. Yeah. Um, Katy, Texas is like football royalty in its own right. Um, I've seen them play. And um, it's like, it's not a stress to say that they would be like a moderately successful Division three team. Or, no you know. doubt. Yep. And it, it, it's an interesting school. You get to, I, I try to still track and follow, but some kids go on to, to from Katy High School to play college, but they never have the success for as dominant as they are as a high school team. But that speaks to the quality of the coaches getting performance out of not the best athletes within the, yeah. the state yeah but that being said you're a lax guy and yeah. you know my alma mater johns hopkins is lax royalty so this is inevitably a part of the podcast so if you're listening you're not a lax guy we're going to make it fun for you before we get into the talking about i'm going to talk about pll preparing lacrosse league yes but um it, it, how would you describe lacrosse to someone who had never seen the sport from like a Eight performance coach perspective great great question think of this as a common the sport is a combination of basketball soccer and hockey all in one we yeah. get subbing on the fly so rather than the stoppage in soccer it's subbing on the fly similar to hockey instead of a a five-man basketball it's similar offense with that respect and defense 
but we get six, six men. And then the goalie, a goal is six by six. I actually got a six by six model behind me. And there is a little man inside. You'd think you want some big fat jumbo goalie. I'm, we made that mistake when we started our high school team, but the best goalies that I've seen have been little wiry athletic dudes that just are freaking fearless within the cage. I've never met a sane goalie in, in my playing or coaching career. So you got to be crazy and within that, man. So it's, it's fun. It's fast. And yeah. they're actually putting a lot more rules in place to speed up the game, believe yeah. it or not, including a shot clock. clock it's a good thing. More, yet more opportunities, more risks within the sport, which I like because the pressure is on. Yeah. And it's, it's ever fun. And with the PLL that you mentioned, they are experimenting with different styles of play, which I can appreciate. But at the same time, it's not as uh, – destructive as I felt the the MLL rules changes were yeah so that that's a whole different conversation but the PLL for example were a typical face-off and so in soccer you it's almost what's the opposite of make it take it like score a goal and then give it to the other team here there's a hockey face-off each and every goal that gets the opportunity so some of the changes that the PLL was trying out was a make it take it almost like you score a goal at the other end and it's like basketball all right, well, let's push it up field. And yeah. there was, um, man, I'm trying to think of some other, other, other things. That was the coolest one. So they use their all-star game and their competitions that don't count as a way to just try other rules. And they, they just put in a two-point line. Uh, I don't know if I'm for that. I still love the traditional game and the, the, the college setup that they're running. Yeah. And, you know, look, lacrosse, it's actually one of the oldest sports in the U.S. I think perhaps mm -hmm. the oldest. It's a Native American game. True but American pastime. The true Amer yeah, the true one. And, but, you know, the professional leagues and PLL, it's essentially a startup league. And they have the freedom to experiment with rules and, and see what works for people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exciting because, you know, changes in football, for instance, I mean, people grind their teeth every time the NFL makes a rule change. The PLL will probably have more freedom. It probably gives them a good advantage in that regard. Yes, and I, I do want to highlight the, the difference. So I referenced MLL, Major League Lacrosse, before. They are city-based. So Boston, the, the Bay Area, uh, Ohio. Yeah, so they pick different cities to represent, and they went old-school sports model. And what the PLL decided to do was do a lacrosse club similar to some, some European-style soccer, and you get this club that represent this this character this team but then each weekend and this is year one this year they only did a a remote tournament where everybody almost like the nba bubble yeah. but their initial plan was the whole purpose is to grow and expand the sport and so they would circuits yeah is exactly it so they'd pick philly they'd pick utah they'd pick seattle and denver all these different cities that would host a weekend tournament so they yeah. have seven teams, seven clubs within there that are just not representative of a city. And they're playing. I like it because they're playing into the, the player era that we are. If you follow the NBA, it's more of a player era than a city as a commitment from a fan. But within that, they'd have Saturday, Sunday games. And Friday, they'd be in the city and then have an open clinic. And they also paired up with the Women's Professional Lacrosse League. So you have 
these kids that may be not exposed to it in Utah and Seattle and so on that can go and get coaching from professional athletes and their first exposure to the sport. Almost if we go to Malcolm Gladwell's book, um, man, oh man, he's got a lot outside out outliers, outliers. That was it. So it's this trigger moment, this spark that they're trying to create where this eight year old kid sees or gets handed a stick or gets a ball from a, a professional athlete and then is in love with the sport. So they're doing their damnedest to spread the sport. I think the Ravels are doing a, a terrific job and as a fan, as a viewing experience, even remotely, I haven't had the opportunity to attend one of the weekends. It's, it, it pulls off the national championship final four weekend, which is in, in for those of you not lacrosse players, what the NSCA did before all this was have a final four. So Friday, let's see, Friday, no, Saturday final four. Man, I forget. They pick a city like Philly or Baltimore, and you'd have your final four Division One teams. Then on Sunday, it would be the national championship for Division Two and Division Three, And then Monday would be the national championship game from the final four. So you get three awesome days awesome. to celebrate the sport. Oh, yeah. It's, it was so much fun. So they took the success and the feel of that and brought it to this professional league. And these guys are there. It, it's ridiculous. Incredible athletes and creative now that they have an opportunity to play and express their abilities beyond the four years within college. Yeah. I am probably my favorite aspect of the game is the basketball aspect, which is guy has the ball. And he's got a matchup, and if he likes it, he can take the guy on to the goal one-on-one. And it's a little bit more physical in basketball. Actually, way more physical than basketball. Oh, yeah, you get a weapon. Yeah, you get a weapon. You can get pretty pretty physical. You can challenge a guy. And um, you, you see a guy who likes his matchup, and he's going on a guy. He's taking him on. He's, that's a 1v1. I'm going after him. I can go to goal on this guy. That's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So the, there are specific – the beauty of the sport, there are specific – offensive plays, defensive schemes and setups, but at the same time, athletes are going to athlete. And if a guy sees that opportunity or the play gets blown up by the defense, they can just get creative and they do. So behind the back, some other under the legs, some ridiculous stuff that just, man, it's difficult to, to comprehend and articulate, but bottom line, athleticism. Yeah. See, um, I remember when I was at Hopkins, every once in a while we get a guy from Canada. In Canada, they play box across. It's a smaller field. It's indoors. And uh, they're, they're typically generally better at stick handling and more creative in small space, which is a lot of fun to watch because these are the guys getting really creative with getting shots off and making passes. Right. And fake outs and little tricks at full speed. And the yeah. confidence to pull that off, man, it's, it's and awesome. they'll fight you. It's a little, they're the guy, a little hockey in them in, uh, in Canada. They do. Yeah. I wanted to highlight a couple PLL. So it's a, it's definitely a younger league, but the guys I was looking for this year were dudes that I followed when I was in college. It was Brody Merrill and then one of your Hopkins boys, Kyle Harrison. Yeah. So they were, I was following them just usually I'm a Houston based fan. I'm a city based team, but without city, I was forced to find some guys that I recognized that I could cheer for throughout the tournament. So they're, they're still going strong, but there's some freaks out there. Miles Jones just dominating, basically the Zion of lacrosse. You can quote me on that. And then, uh, man, and then the Snake's just playing 
the just playing lacrosse really versus some of the the freaks out there it's and it was it was fun tournament and i feel they did it right and hopefully will lead to success and spread of the sport throughout the country yeah we can talk about zed williams he's special Uh, is it five nations or six nations he there's um there's you know basically in new york Mm -hmm. there's the lacrosse culture within this Native American community, which is really cool because that's where it kind of started. Oh yeah. And they, they pay tribute to the lacrosse, the gift of the gods. So that it's amazing that, uh, fortunately I had the opportunity to coach with, a uh, player from the Iroquois nation that he played at Hobart and now was an older coach. So it was cool to hear the history of the game with him. And we would, for the, the couple of years that we coached together, we would have a couple tribute nights. If the, the team was feeling down or low, we'd remind them that this is a game, a gift from the gods. And we would, he had a, he had an old school stick and you would create this ball. So we use athletic tape to create and simulate one of the balls that they would play with uh, way back when just made out of leather and the history of the sport's amazing. I, I suggest people dive into it. If, if you're interested, if you're playing now, dive into the history. It's amazing. And yeah. we would go barefoot. It would be, we'd split the team in half. So it would basically be on a, a full field, but 20 on 20, split the team. And the coaches got in there playing no gloves, no helmets, barefoot. And it, that always was something to bring the magic back to a season when we needed it. So that was an awesome thing I learned from him That's in the cool. history of the sport and the value of where it came from. That's so cool, man. And uh, look, is lacrosse going to be a major sport in the U.S.? Before the podcast, you said yes. I say yes. Uh, There's a couple of factors that go into it. PLL is going to help. So for folks who don't know, the the PLL is ran by the Rabel brothers. Paul Rabel, notably, played at Hopkins, is a Hopkins legend. You could say he's the best lacrosse player of all time. Uh, The best branding, (laughs) the most intelligent lacrosse marketer. Probably got to both out of lacrosse than anyone who's played oh, yeah. lacrosse. Red Bull. Um, so he, he was getting spo- sponsorships and doing things that the, it, was, it was unheard of. And now yeah. that has propelled him, his understanding to him, his bro, to put together this, this league that I'm, I'm really rooting for. Yeah. And, and look, Paul is a physical freak. I mean, this, this is, it's fair to say that physically, Paul had the tools to go on and play big-time football or basketball, or what have you, you know, 6'4", 225, just couldn't pinch the skin off his body. Worked hard from all accounts. People who've ever worked and played with Paul said that he was the hardest working guy. Um, so now he's, he's taking the sport to the next level. But another thing is, you know, football is, is number one in America, but football, I wouldn't say it's under attack, but it's, it's you know, it's under the, the microscope. I mean, I think the NFL is trying to do as much as they can to influence the game in a positive direction, but as we know, um, football athletes are going to uh, divulge to other sports inevitably. And lacrosse is a good alternative for those guys. It, I would look to it. So it, any parents, listeners out there, it is, it's an amazing opportunity. It is a spring sport. So if they're baseballing as well, there'll, there'll be some conflict there. But if you're looking for less opportunity to, for concussions, lacrosse is the way to go. Not to say it will never happen, but yeah. – and if you're a smaller kid, so if you are not the, we, we mentioned Rabel's, Rabel's success and lacrosse, 
I've played against some five, five freaks at Stevenson university that were still all, all conference within that. So size does not, it's not like if as physical as the football, it's not as required as it is for basketball. If you are fast, if you are skilled within your stick handling and can maneuver, you have an opportunity, no matter your size to have an impact on a team somewhere. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, it it takes, it's spreading. I I see when I was at Hopkins, even after I saw more and more players come from Austin, Texas, from Denver, from places that were not traditional lacrosse hotbeds like Maryland, Long Island, upstate New York, and so on. So I I can tell it's growing in different parts of the country. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm coaching a middle school in, in dripping right now. So we're fundamentals at that level, but still trying my damnedest to create a, a love for the game. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your coaching background. And uh, you have this one particular story that kind of sparked your, your journey into being a better coach. And it started with a lacrosse player in 09. Mm-hmm. The, so September, September, 2009, I took on grad school and coaching responsibilities for my, my team at Marymount. I was the three-year captain within and four-year starter within that. So I had gained my team's respect and my coach's respect enough to where they offered me a position as a coach. And my moment of real, like I was in over my head moment actually came with recruiting. I would go on the road and watch these kids play and realize that I was recruiting players that had an intuition and a feel for the game that I had yet to create. Because we, we started our team in in Katy when I was 16 years old. So I played for a year and a half before going on to play in college, total six year career with the sport and was now recruiting. Uh, I didn't know how to communicate to these guys, look, feel, and I was competing against coaches at these tournaments on how to socially intelligently communicate to the parents of why they want to come to Marymount. And I just didn't have it. So I looked for an impact that I could have with these players and it was through weightlifting. I didn't, I, we didn't have a strength and conditioning coach in college, but I suppose I knew my way around the barbell well enough. I won't say as much as I do now or well, but I well enough to then incompetently enough to start to teach these movements to my, my former teammates, but now taking on as my athletes. And we didn't have, we had a fitness facility at Marymount. Now they got an awesome weight room and a new brand new strength and conditioning coach. But at the time it was a fitness center. So think of like a hotel gym. It's basically what we were working with at a small division three school. And we didn't have enough weights for a whole team to train overhead. So my logic brought me to, okay, handstand holds. We need to get upper body strength for handstand holds. So I asked the team to kick up into a handstand against our backfield and concrete wall uh, that we use for wall ball. And one of the kids goes down and I'm Texas high school football, you know, try to get into his face and, um, you know, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, coach him up. But it turned out that he was injured. When he kicked up into the handstand, he tore his rotator cuff. And I, I did that. I took responsibility. This was my former teammate. He was still my friend. And now he was my athlete, and I took away his last year of lacrosse because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So it was that moment that I realized the impact and the power that a coach could have. Yes, it was a negative experience, but 
in, forced me into a position to really deep dive and understand movement and transfer of training to sport and injury prevention in particular. So that was the st- spark, the trigger, the moment for me as a, as a coach to really deep dive and take this professionally. Yeah. And that eventually led you to John Wellborn and mm-hmm. what is now Power Athlete HQ. Yeah, that, that was the moment. I hopped on the internet and found what was formerly the CrossFit football seminar that was led by John Wellborn and a man named Rafael Ruiz. And they, it was in Oakland, California, grad school broke. I didn't have any money. So I spent my last dollar to fly out and learn from these two gentlemen for two days and crack the bone, suck all the knowledge I could from this experience and bring it back and then apply and make mistakes as a coach. The beauty of division three, it's not as impactful. It's non-scholarship for athletics. And I could learn to coach. I could learn to write program. I could learn to communicate to not as in tune athletes. So how many different ways can I say these things to get them in the proper position? And they don't necessarily have as good of coordination as control as a, a Hopkins athlete or above and beyond. So it, it was an amazing experience, all sparked from a moment. And I was that at that level at Marymount for three years as a sport coach doing strength work and conditioning. And then I realized I was a hell of a lot better strength coach than I was a sport coach. So I took that opportunity and jumped across the river in D.C. to Georgetown University. So before Power Athlete HQ, CrossFit football existed. Yes. Uh, you were there during CrossFit football. And yes, so about the time that I started with G-Town, uh, Luke Summers presented an opportunity for me to start interning at seminars and be a demo boy as well as lead a portion or two. And eventually through opportunities and, and willingness to suck in, in, at presenting and teaching, those opportunities led to more and more and more and over the years continued to to travel the world and eventually take on leading and, and being a flow master for those um, for those conferences. So that was a good run. That was 2012 to begin. And then we formally closed that seminar in person at in 2017 at the tail end. So a good five years to whip around the country and learn coaching and at the same time apply it when I was coaching collegially and then with St. Albans school in DC. Yeah. So that, that's your varsity experience. In addition to Marymount, Georgetown division one college and, um, uh, St. Albans high school setting. Yeah. And we internships. So within that, it was always this Georgetown university. They never had a, a formal summer program. It was a big commuter school. So they're, Kids got the opportunity to go home, even football, very small kids stuck around because they're doing awesome internship opportunities at big business, New York City, and so on and so forth. And it wasn't as big a program. So I took that smaller, I didn't want to you know, waste my any time. So I had an opportunity to go down to University of Texas football and do an internship. And That's that right. was, yeah, that was, that was like pulling the curtain back on Oz because you wake up or you, excuse me, you live every day and it's University of Texas, it's Texas A&M. And these two powerhouses go to, go to, uh, go to battle every single year. And then 
now I get this opportunity to see how it's like to train and prepare. And man, there, there are some freak athletes that can literally, whatever you do within the, the weight room, doesn't necessarily translate because they are that gifted. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a glimpse at this different level of athlete versus the Georgetown athlete versus the, the 13 to 18 year old at St. Albans or man, a lot of the, the CrossFit athletes that we were working with all over the world and coaches during the seminar. Yeah. So I, I want to talk more about Texas, but let's just d- delve into high school a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience at Albans? I know Albans really well. It's mm-hmm. a DC, you know, private school that's, that's well known. They've been a team builder client for years, but you, you came in there and that was your, your first stint in a high school setting. Yes. And they, man, they got it. They had, I know they're getting a new Sornex weight room, so I'm kind of jealous, but at the same time they had this old rusty basement. It was awesome. Been in there, they had a bunch of, uh, when I was there, they had a bunch of machines and stuff like that. What, well, that was my first initiative. I got all the machines out and I valued space and we did a lot of essentially warm-ups and movements on the floor to teach body position, athleticism through simple chunks. That was the objective is to empower these kids, unlock their athleticism, and most importantly, keep them healthy and safe and out of the athletic training room that's right next door. And we needed space, not machines, to accomplish that. So Gary, Gary, the, the athletic director, was able to accommodate that. Man, we moved a lot of machines out, fortunately, and the weight room became for the kids, which from my perspective, I felt a lot of teachers were coming in and using it as their fitness center. I, did, I wanted to represent a, and teach these kids training and what it meant, just rusty old barbells, weights. And we had a lot of fun. The school set up where each kid, they need to play a sport every single season. So I always appreciated that. There was multi-sport athletes, every single kid. So they got exposed to, to football, to swimming, baseball, lacrosse, all different and basketball and wrestling. They had all these different opportunities to, in soccer to learn and move through space. And what was interesting is there was never an off season. So that's where I feel I was able to learn a lot in terms of teaching movement because we never wanted to to crush these kids because their weight room assignment was by in season. So if you were in season football, you were in the weight room and it was cool experience, unlock athletic potential, teach these kids hard work and, you know, calluses are not a bad thing. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that Gary gave me and then needed to, to, I had more to give with power athletes. So saw that as, it was it was a head coach position at St. Albans, but it was still part time, and I was traveling. But there was more more potential I felt that I could give through the power athlete than through the St. Albans school. Yeah, um, I, I listened to a past podcast of yours with Scott Caulfield, NSCA now, no longer with NSCA. And at one point, you talked about intersection of sport coaching and strength and conditioning. Mm-hmm. And it work, I want to unravel that because I, you know, when I observe that, you know, that conversation, I, I mostly get the sense that strength coaches like to draw a fine line, a fine boundary between the two 
and are they want to err on the side and not delving into sports specific and really want to stay within this performance realm. So can we just unpack that for like a little bit? There is a lot to unpack. Um, and within that, I think a, a good story to lead us to where I'd like to go with this is one of my teammates and things, problems that I couldn't solve as an athlete. And one of my roommates, Kevin Conklin. So he was all conference at CAC during our run there. And he was maybe, I don't know, 160 pounds, couldn't even bench press 100 pounds, but he had a 100-mile-per-hour shot. He was an attackman. If he got caught on defense, he was still standing people up and doing things that just he didn't express in the weight room. So I'm always a weight room warrior at this point and trying to understand how is he doing this, but he can't do bench press. I remember the famous Kevin Durant couldn't bench press 185 pounds, similar situation before that occurred, just asking these questions and then having moments within my play on the field and where I get overpowered, I get outrun where somebody just backs me down. And there was a moment, my goalie, I, I give up a goal. Some dude essentially think of a big basketball player just backing you down and slam dunking on a lacrosse goal goalie grabs me by the face mask and he says, I've seen you bench press 315 pounds. Get this guy off of me. And I'm at a, a dissonance. I don't understand how all my hard work is not translating to the field. So I always wondered this. And then when I flew out to spend the weekend with Wellborn and Rees, they introduced the concept of posture and position. And the light bulb went off. This question that I've been, been trying with hard work and not seeing the answer on my performance was unlocked. And I'll, I'll give the example, posture and position. So I have this six by six board behind me and I'm standing right in the middle. Imagine that's the, the goalie. So if Hewitt, you are the offensive player and if we are standing right in front of me, you have a six by six opportunity to score a goal. My job, I play defense. My job as defender is to either push you right or left. And the farther you go to the right, what happens to this six by six window? It starts to decrease to six by three and two and one. And that window is closing. So I am maintaining my position on the field and taking yours away. I'm winning that battle. Unless you put on some fancy move that we see in the PLL and you get by me and you take that one by six window and bring it back to a six by six. So you took away my position, you were able to find success on the field. Now we go and think about the weight room. We set up with a heavy barbell on our back. We are in our toes forward athletic position, knee over arches are in steps, and we squat that weight down and fight our way up. But on the way up, our knees cave in, or our knees are driving way, past, way outside our, our feet, or our knees are shooting straight forward, and we're not recruiting our backside or our upper back is folding just, or we're doing the old school, old ball coach. If you look up, the bar will go up, right? We're losing our position underneath the barbell, similar to what would happen on the field. So if we're able to fight and use the weight room as a tool to maintain our posture, our position, and use that as a stress to create this drive, this fight, this coordination within the athlete, this puts us in a better position to translate that to the field so that that light bulb went off I was able to now bring this back to my athlete continue to research to understand 
and how to articulate and communicate that to the athlete. So now we go into a sport coaching position. I had these guys for one, two hours during our, our training. Then we go into a two-hour practice. And I was able to, all right, I'm teaching defense. All right, how are we going to set up in our defensive position? Toes forward, knees over arches are in steps. We're going to push our butt back. All right, and you're going to fight for this position. So I was able to reference the squat rack. Then if we're in the squat rack or in the weight room, I was able to bring in all the key points and factors that our coaching staff wanted to be consistent on within the field. So I was using my four plus hours a day that I was spending with these kids just to find this line and thread of communication from our sport of lacrosse into the weight room, from the weight room into the sport of lacrosse. Then when I got the opportunity to go coach at Georgetown, they don't hand you football. They don't hand you men's lacrosse. I was able to assist with men's and women's, but at the same time, I had to do the drudge teams. And no disrespect, but the crew team, uh, the coach I worked with is no longer there, but we had an amazing relationship because she was willing to learn and allow me to do whatever the hell I wanted within there. And I was doing my damnedest to watch, go watch the regattas, the races, the crew practices, try and work with the coach to try to, try to understand rowing. So that way I could communicate, all right, well, we're squatting toes forward, we're lunging. And this is why we're going to lunge. And I used their sport, but I had to learn it. I'm a land animal, not meant to go out into the water. So I was able to take this opportunity to lens and create a new understanding of a sport and just bring it into the weight room, which then every single athlete ever, swimmer, fighter, back to more field court sports that I'm more familiar with, using those points of performance that a sport coach would use and bring it in to get them into my posture and position within the weight room. So there is a connection there. And most people get wrapped up within the, the programming, the X's and O's, but I would argue it's more of the, the coaching, the communication and making the connection between movement, whether that's weight room or the field and have these representations that the athletes can connect with. The universal athletic position transfer to sport. Um, these are things that are like fundamental pillars within the power athlete curriculum. Mm -hmm. But you, you guys have a lot of people on your programs that are coaches and former athletes. Do they just like to train as if they're, you know, athletes again? I mean, what, what's the popularity of your, your programs, even though they're very oriented towards athleticism? that you still get a lot of, I guess, you know, non-competitive athletes in the sense of like professional and college following your programs. For those, they, majority, they want to be told what to do. So they are so invested in their clients and the people that they're working one-on-one -on -one with, writing and creating and assessing and coaching and directing that they want to be an athlete again. Mm -hmm. And I will, I will say this, a coach should never write their own program. Per, for them personally as an athlete. Yeah. Why? Because you're going to bias what you enjoy and what you love to do when a coach can put you in a position to force you to do the things you don't want to. One arm dumbbell rows. Yeah, exactly. Just and we, we can separate. <laughs> when, 
Yeah, I mean, when writing a program, we can separate and look at this longitudinally over a six-week cycle or 12 weeks or 12 months and see, okay, this is where we're trending and going. Because as an athlete, most of us, hey, just tell me what to do. Show up, bang weights, crush it. And if an athlete is following our program through our, our feeds, we can provide the direction of if they ask why, hey, we can, we can tell them why. We can go there. We don't have to. And we, I do enjoy the, the part where if we have a new cycle within our, our programs, we write a blog about it so we can share for those that are interested for that next level, which is most of the coaches because they'll apply a lot of the tools that they use in their training with their clients and athletes, the fun, the fun stuff, the Jack Street and uh, the different speed approaches. Speed can done, be done very poorly that potentially leads to calf or hamstring so we find a found a good way to range barbell lifts with the speed work and hey encourage coaches yeah do this get a feel for it and give this to your athletes because i i trust they'll be in a better position to not be overdosed or underdosed with speed you i think it's safe to say that you know gen pop really does like training like athletes like competitive athletes i when i saw crossfit up and coming it made so much sense to me like these people get, go in a weight room and they're doing things that they see that you know ohio state does in the weight room and that's cool mm -hmm. that feels good they can do that too there's an appetite for it but you're you're delving into dangerous territory it has to be done the right way yep. you shouldn't just invite people who are on on computers eight hours a day sitting in desks to come in and just get after it. Um, that's a recipe for disaster. And, and we saw that with the man. It was cool to, I can, I, I can say this. It was cool to be a part of the a big CrossFit boom. But when we were traveling the world and we drop into say, Luke and I were traveling to man, Seattle, I don't know, or Buenos Aires, Argentina. We drop in on Friday to get our lift in and observe the coaches in their environment and we'd see some ugly things that we would never advise or give. So it's, it's out there, even simple stuff like a box jump when you hop down. So think of the, uh, how I would encourage the, the old St. Albans boys to do a box jump was we would be reactive off the ground. So if we're jumping up to a 20 inch box, we'd explode up off the ground. All right. We're going to take one moment at the top of that box, and we're going to minimize ground contact time. I want you to hop down, hop up, one, two. And so we would have that plyo off the ground and take a breather on the top of the box. In the opposite, a lot of the small gyms that just think, all right, we got to get our heart rate up. This is a conditioning tool. They hop onto the box and then bound off and pow, big, powerful slam onto the ground, which is the opposite of the training response a lot of those movements were intended to. So that's a, an example. And if a person catches in a plantar flex, which is like toes pointed towards the ground, like a swimmer's foot or a ballerina foot, and then those toes hit the ground, you get the weight of the, the body powering down. And if your heel hits the ground and there's not enough time for your calf to dampen said force, that'll travel down to your tendon. And then a lot of attendant injuries that we've heard of and even seen at the CrossFit games in our, our traveling and our experience. Yeah. We're going to move to uh, online and remote training. I kind of wanted this to be the, 
like the cornerstone of our podcast together because I think it's so freaking relevant to what's happening today. Uh, but before then, we had a fun conversation before we hit record. You have this awesome um, weight room and, uh, you know, at the ranch. Um, I've got my weight room here at the office. You've got a lot of equipment, though, man. Yours, yours is pretty packed in. You've got some nice stuff. Is there a piece of equipment that you just hate? You're a weight room warrior, so, Ooh. I mean, I am too, but, like, there's still stuff we hate. I wanted to ask you, what do you freaking hate? And ah. what's the one piece of equipment that you just couldn't live without? And I think the barbell might be the most def- default answer here. That's cool, too, but I wanted to run it by you. In terms of uh, – I don't have a piece of equipment I hate. I have a movement in which I'm not as too. good as I probably should be, but the – the snatch least favorite yeah it's a tough one so i don't have a peaceful equipment all uh, that that was also the the cool thing about traveling around we'd find the dustiest anything <laughs> and just pick it up and try to try to move it throw it and and find cool ways to to move it through space and yeah. um and let's see favorite piece of equipment that i can't live without barbell assumed so we can take that off the table let's see i'm gonna go a 10 inch box so hear me out the most neglected movement in my opinion is a step up so in our power athlete methodology we teach three lower body actions including a squat think a hinge and then our lunge, so lunging forward, and then finally the step up. Step up is a crucial, it's essential part of being able to sprint. So if I'm able to load up myself or my athletes and maintain good sprint mechanics as the barbell or med ball or sandbag, whatever it may be that I am stepping up onto a 10 inch box is taking me away, I can in a slow down in a window I can make that adjustment that I can play and, and express at full speed during a sprint or a, a lateral, a change of direction. So 10 inch, why? We don't want a higher step up for, we don't want a higher box for our step ups because we want to do a similar execution of a movement as it's expressed on the field. If I go back to our toes forward, athletic position squatting and overloading that with a barbell, the same here. So 10 inches, I'll put, place my foot onto that box. I'll bring my knee out forwards over my toes or in line with my toes. And then my hip is above my knee, similar to as I would coach an acceleration and a speed technique. I don't want that knee going above the hip because then it's going to round the back and we're going to lose a solid acceleration and, and leg drive position. We can use the weight room in this 10-inch box to really master some, some formal speed technique. So I would say that is my favorite and go-to, and it's everywhere, man. There's bleachers. There's all these different tools. But yeah. if we're in the confines of a small weight room, like a 10-inch box, or for a taller athlete, if we're working with the 6'6 Rabel, then bump it up. But bottom line, looking for the knee below the hip in – in that position you can do it stack some bumpers you can make yep. it happen. exactly um look the front squat for me is just an interesting exercise because i can come in the way carved up eight hours of sleep testosterone high 
I got Metallica on and front squats are fine. You know, that that's great. It's the days when you come in and you're just not ready and the front squats are waiting for you, much less a heavy front squat day. You can't cheat the front squat, man. It's going to nope. bury and you'll feel it. You know, it's, it's like the good litmus test for if you're ready to move some weight or not that day. It, it is good for high schoolers or middle schoolers. I'd say that goblet squat is good test and less, less limitations. You're a seasoned athlete. So I'd put you in the most uncomfortable position as possible. That's so that barbell front squat looks great for our younger kids. Goblet squat, if, especially as they come back from this time off from the weight room, they may need some less stressful than the front squat positioning to, to get their groove back. Yeah. So that's my answer is, is front squat on a bad day. That's it, pretty, it, sometimes it can be hard to, to get worse than that for me. Um, I don't have a lot of equipment here, but I've found the power blocks would just be awesome on, on space. D- you, dumbbells are expensive, man. The market is out. Oh of yeah. You want some equipment now? You want some dumbbells? You have to dip into your 401k to get some dumbbells these days. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk power blocks. And that they are, I view a home gym all in itself. So if you're looking to kit out your home gym, you can get everything, every movement, every stress within those power blocks. And we got one of our block one coaches, pun intended, he invested in a pair of these and he shared with Luke and I that it's the best decision that he's ever made. And if we look at our power athlete training programs, we got our third monkey programs. This was, this program was written and it still continues to go today for an austere training environment. So you're military and all you got is sandbags, rucks, rocks, and ammo cans. Here's your training program. And we adapted it once COVID hit and all these gyms shut down and we said, all right, 50 bucks, you get cinder blocks, you get a, Home Depot bucket filled with 60 to 80 pounds of concrete dry. And there's your home gym with some straps and some other things and use this austere training environment. All that we created within that $50 home gym and more, I feel these power blocks are targeted and meant to, and you can range up from, was it 10 pounds? What's the, what's the solo? On mine, I got as low as 10, as high as 90. Yeah. And you can low up two. Yeah. And two, two nineties. Hey, you can get a lot done with that, especially the what what we can get creative with the things we've expressed on Third Monkey. If you think we're getting creative with cinder blocks, just imagine two 90-pound dumbbells. So, man, if that's if people are looking to take on the the home gym, it's a pretty penny, but at the same time, they'll probably outlive you and you can hand them yeah. down to your youth. I went Craigslist, a couple hundred bucks. Crazy. What? Yeah, Craigslist found them perfect and uh i said five pound increments i actually meant two and a half pound increments so recall mike Boyle. he talks about if you're training young athletes and you're buying dumbbells you buy them in two and a half pound increments up until you know 45 pounds that was like his number one piece of advice on one of these talks that he gave and you can do it with these and it makes a difference you know you can kind of hit some hit some loads Um, awesome third monkey this brings us into online remote training. Okay, look, March, COVID hit. You know, there's still some places in the country where people can't come into the facility. Mm-hmm. Even if it was over and all the facilities opened up, there's a proportion of society that is not ready to go back into a training facility. That means online and remote training. People still want a source of programs. They want coaches. They want instruction. 
you guys do online training really well. You've got one of the larger followings that do the type of training that you write programs for following you. So I, now I'm getting a lot of coaches that are asking us about how to do online and remote training. This, there might not be a right answer to this, but let's talk about some of the keys to making yourself an effective coach remotely and at being good at getting people to buy into your, your program, your system, why you're going to coach them remotely. This, this great question. It's the future. And the home gym is the, it's the revolution of this industry. So that is, that's where fitness is going in our, our perspective. So it's important if you are looking to expand your bandwidth as a coach, you understand how to do that, not only in person, but take what makes you a great coach in person and apply it remotely. And to that, I would say touch points. And never assume that your athletes are doing the work that you are providing. And that goes back to freaking a college coach. You give them a packet over the summer, it's assumed they don't do anything. And if they do, awesome. But if they don't, now we're in a remote position. And with technology, we can check in on that program that we hand off. And it's, it's logging attendance. It's using direct message or as much as you can through the app of the program to get them onto it. So there could be email touch point, there could be text touch point, but if we're getting them and creating a habit within that, like they're going to check their Instagram at the same time, they're going to check the messages from their, their team, their coach. And that is going to be it. Whether it's writing your training day notes or your Monday motivation within the, the program that you're delivering at the same time, how can you double down on that and find a way to make it as, as momentarily impactful as you can? So, and posting your training videos, whether that's your, your pump up speech for the week and being active and showing them that you're still there or in giving them praise within that say, Hey, Johnny squat from last week. Great job. And giving them praise on that back end touch point for feed forward impact for the upcoming week. Cause Maybe an athlete on that team wants that, that to be called out and praised within that. And it's also leveraging your, your social media presence as a coach. And this may be uncomfortable yeah. for a lot of you, but at the same time, hell, this, this is the future. And if you're not comfortable sharing your movements, then okay, find some athletes that are comfortable with sharing their videos and you can provide some coaching directions or fee advice that you give that athlete, but you're sharing this and showing your ability to coach remotely within that and arranging your programming to teach movement. This, this is a key thing. And then on our power athlete Academy, we have a free warm up course, which accomplishes this goal. It's arranging your warm up to teach your back squat. It's arranging your warm up to teach your deadlift. And finding the chunks of these major barbell movements that people geek out on to then simple break it down into one, two, three pieces and have your movements to your coaching since you are not there. And yeah. if, if you want to learn more about that, Power Athlete Academy, academy.powerathletehq.com. And that, that breaks down the purpose of the warm up and how to arrange it to have your warm ups teach and express your athlete's athleticism. And finally, one note I do want to add and having encouraging your athletes, if we're working with high schoolers, film, record 
all of your movements, all of your lifts, and catalog it. This is going to be the next, and I feel the future of sport recruiting. If these tournaments, these showcases are going away for these different sports, seven on seven for football, lacrosse, AAU for basketball, those tournaments are going away. They're going to be relying a lot more on potential and intangibles and all these little things. What shows potential, intangibles, weightlifting. You have this opportunity to now show your progress. If we are squatting for the first time and it's recorded, it's going to look terrible. But guess what? Through more opportunity, more weight, you're going to get more coordinated. And then in 10 weeks, you're a whole different person underneath that barbell. So you can show this progress or you can do the, the, the big football highlight weightlifting that we see on Instagram that is so popular. You can become that poster child. So I would use weight room to leverage recruiting and there's more tech recruiting companies that are blowing up mm-hmm. to, uh, I feel are going to take off with, without the showcases and the in-person tournaments that happen regularly in sport. So if you have more video to show your potential, it's similar to the, the awe effect of the NFL combine, but virtual. And we know the combine doesn't always pan out for an athlete in the professional sports realm. But hell, if we're talking college sports and get you an opportunity, that's payout in my mind. How important is video for coaching? I mean, for you and your clients, you have them take video often. Do you break it down, send them video back, send them notes back? Is that, is that a requirement for remote coaching? I feel it is. If you want to, it's not a requirement if our, our goals are general. If we're general, physical, preparedness, if you're a 30-year-old CEO and you just want your, your 30 minutes of time in there, not as important. More important is your checking in. I'm seeing your logging, recording, yeah. and the accountability. If your performance, if your livelihood is relying on your execution, we can go back to our high schooler that's aiming for that scholarship or if we're working with professional or collegiate level athlete at that moment where their movement matters, then it becomes crucial and important. And then there's also the client that is simply interested. They want the feedback. They want the coaching. Give it to them, provide them. Customer's always right. And they have that opportunity now through tech to, to post videos within that, upload it to YouTube and share that link and hell coach away. Yeah. On um, the business and logistics of being a remote coach, um, what's better, what's more feasible? Having 10 clients that you spend a lot of time with and charge 150 a month or having 100 clients that you charge 15 a month? I, I would argue the 10, the slower number and charge more. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the idea of remote coaching. I've been pushing this for a long time because as a collegiate strength and conditioning coach, you don't make any money. And now we have this technology opportunity where I'm a, I got two, three downtime hours downtime during the day. I can plug into a, a training app and provide coaching remotely that then allows me to keep the lights on and keep the job that I love. Yeah. So it's supplemental, potential supplemental income. And if you can get the most bang for your buck. So I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I mean, personally you get more coaching in with the higher class and that's where I would lean 
towards interest, but in terms of recommendation for operations, I do not have one. What do you, what do you like to do more? What can keep a spark in a fire within your other profession? Say, Hey, you're uh, an accounting, I don't know, whatever. If your job's not coaching and you're in it for just the, the, the connection, like I know personal, there's a lot of personal trainers that had or still have this, this side hustle business or even, I mean, it's the same respect to a little league coach that's giving their time with the team because they want something more to give. If that's the, if that's the case, then find a price point that allows you to, to connect and get your, get your fire back. Yeah. Um, on the topic of gaining an edge, um, you know, if you're saying you're, you're running a remote coaching business and you feel like you need to have an edge, cause there's a lot of programs out there. They can rip a page out of muscle and fitness magazine mm-hmm. they can, you know, follow people on Twitter or giving you know, booty games, workouts, whatever. What, what would you recommend as an edge that a coach should try to find when building a clientele, when standing out because they don't have the opportunity to kind of win them over in person? It's, it's, depends on what client you're aiming to target Mm -hmm. because we've seen a lot of success of if they look the part, then they can attract a certain client that's aiming to look that part. If they're doing some awesome, if they're showing, if they're doing some awesome slam dunks and plyometrics on there and they're talking about said jump program, they're showing and will attract that client. And then we have the, the scientists or the showing graphs or charts or the, the saber metrics of your weightlifting approach that, okay, this client, and it could be you as that client over 20 weeks, we were able to see this progress or this amount of fat loss or this amount of increase in their squat. So it all depends on who you're aiming to coach and you want to create that, that message for that individual person. And I encourage you to be as authentic as possible because there will be people out there that ask you challenging questions and push and you better have an answer for them. So it's, it's finding out what you're essentially good at or passionate about and can provide an authentic experience, training experience for those folks. How important is nutrition? Um, it seems like everyone could use help with it that's within the realm of a strength and performance coach. I don't see why not. Oh, it, it absolutely. It's going to be the most difficult uh, message that you can deliver. Mm-hmm. And it's where you can make the smallest impact as an athlete and have the biggest results. When we talk about building and constructing a power athlete, it's the foundation of that nutrition and recovery nutrition re- recover you. Every time you step into a weight room, you get worse. Nutrition and recovery is our opportunity, just like Wolverine, to rebuild that athlete. And it's going to be the most challenging and difficult conversation that you'll ever have as a coach, but it's the best opportunity that you have to empower your athlete. I got two quick stories from St. Albans to to paint this picture. Uh, number one, a fun story. We, we needed the kids to put on weight. So these freshman or sophomore kids were footballers. We're trying trying to, to talk to me about how, how they're going to lift weight or excuse me, put on weight. And my solution was olive oil. 
So think about Nana McQuilkin's 10 second pour where you pop the top off olive oil and just count to 10 as you're pouring it over your salad. Number one. Then we had, okay, well, they, they didn't have that opportunity for the bottles, but they could still get access to olive oil. So I'm like, all right, trying to do, to remember the specific math in my head, but it came to, if I take four ounces of olive oil a day over seven weeks, that's going to equal 3,500 calories equals one pound. And in my mind, I'm like 28 year old coach, one ounce. How they ask me, how do you measure an ounce? And I tell them shot, a shot glass. (laughs) I'm thinking, not thinking anything of it. So these kids go to the cafeteria and they're asking for a shot glass and they're like, what, what are you talking about? No. And they're like, what coach McQuilkin told us. So then I had to get the call from Gary to go down and talk to the AD to try to explain myself why I'm telling kids to go get shot glasses from, from the cafeteria. So that's one way uh, to put on that pound and the, trying to accelerate and encourage these kids that bounce back the other way. The other issue I ran into was, I think it was either red meat or whole milk. A parent was a man or worked for in DC, the American heart association, one of those heart and my recommendation for the kids to have whole milk. So full fat recovery, we're going to train, we're going to crush it. And I need you to chug a glass of whole milk. So what I was, it was, it was whole milk eggs. I think it was eggs. Just one of the ones, it was eggs and cholesterol. That was it. Sorry. It's been a while. Eggs eggs and cholesterol, whole milk. That was a recommendation, but I don't know if I need to push back on that, but eggs definitely had the pushback. And so it was going to essentially stand and present information and help educate Gary to communicate to said parent of why we're recommending a diet that is the American Heart Association was was telling was killing people. So it was like, oh my God, how this is dangerous. What are we going to get into? So did my due diligence the best I could. Uh, but man, just some some funny things. Essentially, what I'm getting at is people foods associated with holidays. It's associated with celebrations and gatherings and things like that. It's such a emotional connection that people have. And as soon as we try to aim or target it towards performance or provide some limitations on there or increasing, like for example, the, the olive oil, it starts to put a stress and a strain on there that has this negative impact despite our good intentions. Yeah. So why I say that is you need to be armed and ready to go in and educate and empower and there, there are plenty of tools. I know Wellborn's got awesome blogs. If you search, just tell me what to eat. It's a good starting point. And we have a lot of podcasts with Rob Wolf, who's yeah. a big name in the nutrition space. And he is not shy about sharing the, the truth and getting behind the, the science of it all. So very impactful uh, opportunity that if you don't understand it, the X's and O's of strength and conditioning will only take you so far unless you start to unlock and understand the value and the power of eating well. Yeah. Like you mentioned, food is a reward mechanism often. It's something that you do after a long ass day of work. Um, you're not going to cook. You're going to grab something. Um, it, uh, there's a big mental thing around it. But luckily, I see a lot of coaches delving into the mental side of, of their profession 
for the better. Um, their symposium is a good example of that no one's really there to talk X's and O's of training. We're there to talk about the mind, the, the mind of a coach, the mind of an athlete. That's what I really appreciate about the symposium. I've been to two now. And what are the plans for this next one? What we don't know yet, do we? We, we do not know yet. 2020 is the symposium is not going to happen. Unfortunately, the future, we're not a hundred percent sure what that holds. And hopefully we, we're going to keep the podcast running and, and we'll uptick the opportunities and conversations now that people are used to Zoom. Yeah. We're going to have continue that show and provide people with opportunities to connect and learn from as many different people as possible. And everyone's got an, a story. And if they're on Power Athlete Radio, I will say this. There's something that they can bring to your life in the table. If you haven't heard the name or don't recognize the name, I still encourage you to have a listen and take at least one thing away from that 60, 90, two-hour two hour minute conversation. And, and you, um, you will. It's yeah. inevitable, the, the caliber of people. And if you're an NFL fanboy like I am, you know, Cal Turley showed up last year. You know, the, yeah. he's the original helmet swinger, right? Not Miles He Gary. is. Cal he Turley. is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the original hammer would be the That's, hammer. The, uh, the father, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but always a good time. So I'm sad to hear about 2020, but um, the, you guys are innovative. You're, you're going to do something. You always do. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I'm going to post information. We can wrap up here, but um, young coaches look at, or not even young coaches, any coach, looking at block one. It's freaking mm-hmm. awesome. Like Tech said, it's just a totally different take, uh, a practical take on coaching, being a performance coach. Plenty of information online about it. Uh, if you're interested in programs, there's the website, obviously, Nutrition. They've got that covered. Uh, and then lastly, listen to the podcast, man. The, the guys, when they get together, it's just a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy those. So thanks for putting those on. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, we try to make it as, as fun and authentic as possible and give people a, an infotaining experience. Well, you did a good job. Well, thanks for coming on our little podcast. We appreciate your time. And uh, I'll see you around soon, man. Cool. Thank you very much, dude.